0: True confession from me, as we begin this morning, when I eat or when I drink something that I really, really enjoy, I can't help but comment sometimes too much on how much I enjoy it. But I actually think that's true for all of you in some way. If you see a movie that you like or you read a good book, there's a song that you love or a band, or when your team is playing, my guess is you can't help but say something. You can't help but tell others. You can't help but ask others to listen to that song or to see that movie because what we love and enjoy, we will commend and we will praise. We're hardwired hardwired to do that. It's brought to mind, C.S. Lewis wrote this famously. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy Because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Praise is the natural completion of what we enjoy. If we could put this another way, we can't escape worship, it's simply a fact. What we delight in, we will praise, we will honor. And the question we should ask ourselves is whether what we worship can hold the weight of our worship. This morning, we're going back into Revelation. We're close to the end. We're in Revelation 19. It's the very last book of the Bible. Revelation 19, 1 to 10 And we come to another worship scene in this book. We saw last week that Babylon had fallen, was destroyed. And so what now? Worship. Overwhelming worship. The false worship of Babylon is is over. And the true worship of heaven begins. This morning I want you to see this main point. From these 10 verses, God is worthy of worship for his great work in salvation through judgment. God is worthy of your worship for his great work of salvation through judgment and for the coming marriage of the Lamb. God is worthy of worship for his great work in salvation through judgment and for the coming marriage of the Lamb. So two points as we look at this chapter One, praise God for salvation through judgment. Praise God for salvation through judgment. That's the first five verses. And secondly, praise God for the coming marriage of the Lamb. Praise God for the coming marriage of the Lamb. That's six through ten. Let's begin by seeing and hearing this first point. Praise God for salvation through judgment. Look at verses 1 to 5. 1 to 5. This is God's word. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, "Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just." For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. John begins by writing after this. What has just happened? We saw Babylon the great, also called harlot, great prostitute, destroyed, thrown down with, with violence in a single hour Mighty Babylon fell. All her pleasures, all her joys, the music of Babylon, the light, the weddings, John said, were no more, no more, no more. And those who loved Babylon lamented her death with a dirge, a funeral song. Babylon's music is over, the praise of heaven has just begun. John says he heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude. Notice he doesn't say voices. It's a voice. The praise is unified. in it's praise toward the living God. Verse 1, verse 3, verse 4. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. It's the drumbeat of the praise. This word, hallelujah, is a, a Hebrew word, which just mentally, simply means praise ye Yah. Praise Yah. Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. And Babylon's multitude, after lamenting the false hope of salvation that this world offered, here's a, another multitude praising God for lasting salvation. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. They're His alone. It was so confused. This was so contested. In the world destroyed, it's now on clear display in the world to come. What's the reason? What's the reason for the praise of the great salvation? Verse 2, His judgments are true and just. Once again, it's in Revelation... God's mighty salvation comes through judgment. God's people praise God for his judgment. And his judgments are not out of control. They're not like ours, unmeasured, done on a whim, wicked or false. They are just and true. There's not a human court on this planet which we could say always just and true are your judgments. We, we wrestle with making judgments in the smallest of cases, try being a parent. When your kids come to you to decipher who did what, here is the living God who will judge the whole world, every creature in a way that is true and just. He, the text says, judged the great prostitute for specifically two reasons. She corrupted the earth with her immorality and God avenged on her the blood of his servants. So this world, organized as it is in rebellion and in immorality and her persecution of the servants of God God's people are praising God for judging. So I want you to see very clearly there really are two ways and only two ways to live in this world. If you're not a a Christian, I want you to consider, think about this praise to God for judging the world for immorality. So from the vantage point of heaven, what is right, what is wrong is not based on what our different cultures and and nations and countries come up with. What is moral, what is immoral, is universal. And it is determined by God. It is revealed by God. And notice, it will be judged by God. This whole scene is not a scene of debate. It's one of declaration of praise to God for His judgment. So I would ask you to consider if what you think, how you're thinking about morality and immorality is based on reason. That is what your, your society or your culture has come up with. Or is it based on what God has revealed? So some of you come from backgrounds where what is right and wrong is determined by the collective society. And Progress is made in that way. Others of you come from spiritual backgrounds where you would happily say, we have revelation. We have a holy book. You have a holy book. What makes your holy book better than our holy book? The way I would implore you to consider that question is to consider at the very heart of the Christian faith, is this claim Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and we would unequivocally say that if he wasn't raised from the dead, all of this right now anything we're really saying to you about Christianity is a waste of your time but if he was raised from the dead then he has an authority like no other person on the planet to reveal what is moral and immoral and then to judge based on what he's revealed. God is praised here because he has revealed what is right and wrong. And he's judged according to his standards. And all of this is backed by the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, a real human being from the dead. So I would urge you, I would implore you to think about what's right and wrong, investigating whether Jesus was raised from the dead. And if he was, you have an obligation to listen to him through his word and then to obey him in what he said. Now notice his judgments are also true and just based on the fact that he has avenged the world, the blood of her servants. I do think one of the greatest sorrows and tragedies of this world is that not all wrongs are righted. They simply aren't. Not every murderer is caught. You know this. Not every person who does wrong in the in the workplace is addressed. Often they get promoted. At least in this country, unfairness can often feel more like the norm to us rather than the exception. I know a number of you know this too personally. You've experienced it. But notice how our God cares about and will bring justice. He receives praise because he judges in avenging the blood of his servants. When we come to this point in Revelation, we have felt the anguish of that cry O oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on all those who dwell on the earth? We heard that cry of the martyrs in chapter 6. And John told us that they were given a white robe, they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of the servants had come in. And now the time of waiting a little while longer is over. And that means that the sovereign Lord did not forget. The sovereign Lord, holy and true, brought justice for each of his servants. All wrongs are being righted. And once more they cry out, hallelujah. Smoke goes up from her forever and ever. It's not the first time this has been said in Scripture. The prophet Isaiah looked forward to this day of God's vengeance. And he saw it and he said of it, Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. So Isaiah saw this in the future. The apostle John sees this as having already been done. It's a certainty What's Revelation showing us once again? The forever nature of God's judgment. I think if each of us are honest, we would say judgment is that topic in Scripture that we just kind of tiptoe around. We know it's there. We feel a little nervous about it. We feel, if we're really honest sometimes, embarrassed about it but do you notice there's absolutely no embarrassment in heaven? Here's a throne room scene. And the people of God see God's judgments for the good and the right reality that they are. What good does it do us to think about the eternal nature of God's judgments? One, it helps us to see how wicked this world really is this world for which Christ Jesus died. And secondly, as one writer said, the infinite worthiness of the God whom this world repeatedly blasphemes. His great worth. It's not until we see the great worthiness of God that we begin to understand the seriousness of the very real treason that sin is against Him. Notice how clearly this multitude sees it. No one here is confused. No one is questioning it. And then look who ratifies, who agrees with this judgment. The 24 elders, the four living creatures are falling down and worshiping God. Remember from earlier in Revelation, the 24 elders most likely are angels and they stand for the 12 tribes... And the 12 apostles, the church unified across the ages. And here they are again with these four living creatures, which are the cherubim. Ezekiel saw this cherubim, these living creatures, protecting the throne of God. The cherubim were the very ones who guarded access back into the, to the garden, to the tree of life, after Adam and Eve were expelled for their sin. Here they are, this mighty angelic cherubim around the throne of God. John could have just said they worshiped God, but he says they worshiped God who was seated and they fell down to worship God. They are below God spatially, worshiping the God who is seated he's seated. He's not in a panic. He's not walking back and forth in heaven, wondering what's going to happen. The God at the center of the universe is seated, in control, seated as this world is running back and forth to the the next thing, to the next idol. He's unthreatened. He's unrivaled. Nothing. No one is stopping this God from accomplishing every single one of his plans. And so this voice, maybe one of the cherubim from the throne room there in verse 5 calls out, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Who is welcome to the throne? Those who fear God this God. Those who this world would have considered foolish for living by faith in this God. We have here the mightiest to the lowliest angel. We have the smallest to the greatest saint, all of them called servants. Now, what's remarkable about this scene, if we know ourselves, is there is No concern for self. There's no comparison. There's no envy. That world is over. The angels alone in this scene must have been overwhelming and majestic. John doesn't focus on that. He turns all of our attention because all of their attention is focused on God. Seated on the throne... This is worship and life unhindered by sin, unhindered by self. This is human beings freed to see and savor savior the Savior with the most exhilarating joy. I don't want you brothers and sisters to become too familiar with this. To overlook this. That when this world ends, there's going to be a whole new beginning. A new age, and a new world, and then the other side of this fallen, wicked age is a, is a, a world, an age that is so wonderful, so joyful, that every hope you've placed in it, every sacrifice you've made in light of it, every act of faith that you've made in this age will be worth it. Faithful, sacrificial obedience will be worth it. When you flee that temptation, it will be worth it. When you're faithful in your workplace and no one notices, and perhaps you even face injustice because of it, it will be worth it. Students, when you live as Christians in your schools and on your campuses, it's worth it. Those of you seeking to make the gospel known, when you see so little fruit, it will be worth it. God will not overlook. God is going to bring about a great reversal just like He raised Jesus from the dead. The other side of the salvation of the multitude of this, the judgment of the multitude of this world is the salvation of a great multitude to God. Salvation comes through judgment. God destroys Babylon, God keeps the multitude. No one is missing. Never, ever take for granted that there's a multitude in Revelation presented as a fact. It means God has the power to keep His his promise. As you go out for the sake of the name of God, as you evangelize, as you bear witness, moms and dads, as you pour the gospel into your children, as we together hold out this glorious gospel as a church We do so because we are certain Christ's death is not a wish. It's a certainty. He purchased the multitude. As I was reading this text and this refrain of hallelujah, 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 I I could not help but think of Handel's Messiah. Actually, listen to it while I was preparing this. Hallelujah, hallelujah, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And he shall reign forever and ever. Have you ever heard that performed live? If there is a really good orchestra and choir, it is overwhelming. It gives me chills, but it will pale in comparison to this multitude in unison, across time and places, crying out hallelujah to the triune God of heaven and earth. There is so much that fails in our world. Be confident of this. God's praise will never fail throughout eternity. Very practically, are you worshiping with your life what will fail you? Are you chasing each day what will never satisfy you? You can figure this out by considering what it is that you think about, what occupies your mind, what your heart longs for. Here's something, what is it that makes you angry, agitates you? Where do you spend your money, talents? I think all of that can help you consider what you think is of greatest worth, your attention in the world. I. Don't want you to worship what will fail you. Do you see here the way that this worship scene just exposes counterfeit false salvations and glories? How small it makes human idols. How clearly we see the greatness of the God who is as this multitude praises him. For you as a Christian... I want this scene to fill your heart with joy. I long for this to anchor your hope freshly in Christ. I also hope that seeing this scene would help us all to see that we as Christians should be the very last of all people in the world characterized by panic. Our God is on the throne. Steady faith. We know the end. We know the God on the throne whose every purpose will come to pass. Why do Christians often seem like the ones panicking? If you're not a Christian, have you given thought to the fact that the scriptures reveal this world is coming? Are you living for this world that is totally temporary and ignoring a world that is coming That is eternal. Even more, are you living for or all of your hopes bound up in gods that are temporary? And are you ignoring, are you suppressing this true God who is eternal? That's not escapism. That's living in wisdom with the life God has given you. Once again, this book gives us this massive vision of God. We just saw in the last chapter this tragedy of wasted worship. Kings and the merchants and the sailors, all classes lament because what they worshiped was taken away from them in a moment. They gave their worship to what will never last. I don't want it lost on you that in this book, which shows us again and again, Humanity wasting its worship on what is false. A great multitude worshiping God for everything that is true. True worship gives the living God praise for who he is, not what we imagine him to be. Brothers and sisters, keep yourselves from idols. Your lives and your worship toward the living God will not be lost Lastly, let me just say from this, I want to encourage any of you here who know discouragement or depression or doubt. Whatever in your life right now is dark or confusing, whatever it is about your life or your circumstances, however heavy that is, God will not fail to bring you. If you're in Christ to this day, to this multitude... All the sorrow you know is going to turn to rejoicing. All of your woe to worship. He will do it. I can only imagine how much joy and light seem out of reach to you. But here is truth you can bank on. God will not let your soul be lost. His promises will last. And I'm certain of that because that promise is bound up in God not in you in what you feel. This, this is meant to propel your affections and your eyes toward God revealed in Jesus Christ. God reveals this to you as a Christian to assure you of his power, to assure you that his plans in Christ are unbreakable. He will bring them to pass. Praise God. He brings salvation through judgment. And praise Him also for the marriage of the Lamb. The marriage of the Lamb. Let's look at verses 6 through 10. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. If you are looking for a place of quiet, tranquility, and silence, the throne room of God is not that place. It is filled with loud and powerful praise. John hears the voice of the great multitude again. Notice the effort they give to praising God. It sounds like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. This is praise that would make the loudest stadium in this world seem tame. It is unembarrassed. No one is shy. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty has destroyed the world system that so opposed him and his people. He has defeated this world that defeated his people again and again. His kingdom has come. And all of the false idols and hopes of this world are laid bare. It's amazing the reasons that God's people praise God in this text. Salvation and glory and power. Verse 1, his just and true judgments. In verse 2, hear the indisputable fact of his reign. His attributes of power, his eternality, his authority are all on display. Don't you feel when you read this the godness of God? What does he do with his power and his authority? He judges and he saves and he does even more. Verse 7 the marriage of the Lamb has come, the bride has made herself ready. On the very other side of that funeral dirge that we saw last week for the world is a wedding. A wedding the marriage of the lamb and his bride. I know for some of you this is very familiar. And I'm afraid that the familiarity that you have with it can cause you to lose your astonishment that this is what God has purposed for his people in Christ. For others of you, this is new. It's strange. In another book of the Bible, Ephesians, there's, an apostle named Paul, and he gives these instructions for husbands and wives and how they're to live together. And then he writes this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. And he's referring back to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis when God created the world and he created marriage. And what this means is God created marriage because God was preparing the universe for a much greater, a more profound and eternally lasting marriage, Jesus Christ, to the church. God created marriage because God had already planned the gospel. Marriage is a pointer that unveils this mystery. Do you ever wonder why marriage is ultimately under assault in so many cultures and nations? Because it is what God created and gave to reveal this most glorious reality in the universe. William Hendrickson is a teacher who helps us unpack what would have been well known to these readers, the marriage customs of Hebrews there in the first century and earlier. First, there would have been the betrothal, which was more binding than what you and I would just think of as engagement. It would have been carried out in witnesses. It would have been legally binding. So when Joseph and Mary were betrothed to each other... It was very serious. It was more than just engagement. And then there's that period between betrothal and the, the wedding feast. And that period when the, the groom would pay a price to the father of the bride. Sometimes that could even be done in terms of service rendered. So think of Jacob to Laban. And then would come the wedding processional. The bride and the groom rest in their best like we know the the groom with his friends would often go at night with torches to the home of the bride and she would return with the groom to his home or to his parents home and then the wedding and the marriage supper this process could last up for to a week maybe more you know Jesus used weddings in his parable you know he didn't have to explain this process they simply knew what happened, just like we all know what happens in marriages in our cultures and nations. We have to learn from this. We are betrothed to Christ, and it's binding. But more than that, before the foundation of the world, God chose us in Christ to be His bride. And during the entire Old Covenant, Old Testament period, God was preparing the world and announcing a wedding is coming. And then Christ Jesus came. And in his life, and his death, Christ paid the price. He paid the dowry for his bride. And what kind of bride did Christ come to win? A sinful bride. Christ did not come for us and die for us because we are lovely and cleaned up. He came for us. He died for us to make us lovely. And God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And now we who have repented and believed on Jesus Christ are betrothed to Christ and he to us. And what's he doing right now? He's beautifying us. He's sanctifying us. He's making us ready in this in-between time as we wait for the marriage feast. But it's coming. Christ paid the dowry in blood, his own blood. Every earthly wedding pointing us forward to this heavenly wedding. So when we come to this chorus of praise to God for the marriage of the Lamb, we are coming literally to the red hot center of what the universe is about. The bride has made herself ready because it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Do you see the contrast between this bride and the harlot, the great prostitute of chapter 17, arrayed in purple and scarlet, gold and, and pearls, but in her hand, a cup full of abominations. This bride is totally different. Why? Because this bride wears what was granted her. I want you to think about this. What did God do after Adam and Eve sinned? Shamefully naked. Clothe them in their nakedness. What did God do for his faithless bride, Jerusalem. In Ezekiel 16, go read that chapter. He adorned her with fine linen and silk. Here is the God revealed across the ages who clothes sinful, shameful people. Not because there's anything worthy in us, but because in him is infinite grace and mercy. Why is it that across all our cultures, we all love the story Of the pauper, of the poor princess, the little girl who grows up and is carried away by a noble prince. I think it's because deep down we all know, we all hope that's our story. That we're in the middle of that story. Here on this coming day, spiritual paupers will be clothed in embarrassing riches of righteousness. Righteousness. Granted to us by God, Christ will freely give to us. We could never provide and and put on for ourselves. Do do you need, if you're a Christian, to be reminded this morning of the goodness, the otherworldly goodness of the gospel? Kind of how too good to be true the gospel is. Here it is. We're going to this wedding. And we're not going as wedding crashers. We're going to go there as honored guests bought by the blood of the Lamb. And we will be presented to the most expectant and joyful groom the world has ever seen. And we will be rightly clothed when we're there, not because of us, but because of Christ. I'm well aware that we don't look like much to this world, but in Christ we are clothed with a beauty and a glory that will not ever fade. A beauty that will shine throughout all Eternity. And if you're not a Christian, do you see how truly good the God that is in the Bible really is? That his own son would leave the glories of heaven for an unworthy and sinful life, uh, sinful world, and buy her back a sinful people through his life, his death, and his resurrection. Every other religion of the world tells you, work your way to God in some way. But in Jesus Christ, God works His way toward us and works for us. His righteousness granted to us. I would urge you to repent. To turn away from wherever else you're looking for righteousness and come to Christ. To receive Christ. Oh, You must see how much more worthy and beautiful Jesus Christ is than lesser gods come to Christ. He will receive you as he's received so many of us, even now. What then are we to make of this praise here that the fine linen is of the righteous deeds of the saints? Well, first, their righteous deeds aren't what saved them. The righteous deeds vindicate them. The deeds prove their confession Now, if you've been here for some time, you know we preach, we stand on salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the only way of salvation. But you should never think deeds don't matter. We are saved that we might walk into good works that God has prepared for us. This multitude here were living in Babylon, but they didn't walk in the way of Babylon So practically, that does mean, Christian, your obedience, your your progress, your sanctification in the Christian life matters. It will prove that you had trusted Christ by faith. And God's going to rejoice over your faith and the faithfulness that he enabled in you in the first place. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's one of the seven blessings written down in this book. We're meant to remember that sentence. We're meant to remember this marriage feast will not underwhelm. The prophet Isaiah looked forward to it. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a food full of marrow, of aged wine, well, well refined. He will swallow up death forever and wipe away all tears. There will be no joy like the joy of this feast. Sin will not prevent us from missing any of it. These are the true words of God. And here's John, maybe in joy, maybe in utter confusion. Perhaps he's overwhelmed. He falls down to worship this angel who reveals this to him. The angel's not confused about its place in the universe. It warns John, Don't worship me. I'm a creature, a fellow servant with you and all the brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. The whole book of Revelation makes this clear. Worship belongs to God alone. The book of Revelation reveals that the greatest problem of the world is fundamentally not health, or an economic problem, or an environmental problem, or a political problem, the deepest problem of the world is worship. False worship. Human beings worshiping what is false. And so the most basic reality Revelation reveals to us is just how God-centered this universe is. Worship God. So, whatever does confuse you about this book, and I honestly hope it's less and less after the time we spent on it, it's so clear on where your worship belongs to the triune God. Through Jesus Christ, directly connected to the worship of God is this strange saying for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I think it most likely means that the testimony given by Jesus and about Jesus is the heart of the spirit of inspired prophecy. This true prophecy, all of scripture, is about Jesus Christ. What should we get from this scene of worship? First, get this, those who God calls, he keeps. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This invitation, it's a calling, it's not like one where you get an invite. And you can do what you want with it. When God invites, when he calls you in this way, he does it effectively. He never fails when his word goes forward to issue forth life. So see this privilege of being called by God by the Spirit. That is, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, it's because God has sovereignly done in your heart what he did when he created the whole universe. He spoke, He created life where there was nothingness and deadness. If you love God, it's because He first loved you. He wants you because He he wants you. He loves you because He loves you. When you get your mind around that, it frees you to enjoy God. It frees you to risk for God's name. It frees you to live your life in a way that this world's values will never, ever celebrate. But heaven will. Second, I want you to see there's nothing that you lose in this life for Christ's sake that will not be gained. Whatever you suffer for the sake of Christ in this life, the marriage supper of the Lamb assures you joy is coming that will outweigh every loss. A number of you come to my mind knowing personally the losses and the sorrows and the costs that you've counted to follow Jesus. The joys coming will outweigh the sorrows. Third, see this, from the judgment to the marriage supper of the Lamb, we're not there yet. This great multitude assures us God's not going to fail in His great salvation. There is more time. And because there's more time, we have work to do. Some of you are discouraged about a lost friend or maybe even a member of your own family. Some of you have seen little fruit of late in your ministry. Remember the multitude. Remember the mercy and grace of God deeper than you can fathom. Don't give up. On the other hand, some of you presume on God and His patience. Time will not go on forever. Time, by its nature, has a limit God's patience is great but it's not endless finally I want you to see unmistakably joy is coming joy unlike any we've ever known or experienced because of our great and good God we're rebels we've rebelled against him He clothes us with righteousness. Christ takes those who have committed spiritual adultery and he makes us his own. He's bound himself to us. He's preparing us and the world for a wedding feast unlike any other. In this world, Babylon, temporary joy precedes eternal sorrow. With Christ, temporary sorrow precedes eternal joy. Brothers and sisters, how did the world begin? It began in an explosion of overwhelming joy as God created the world by and through and for His Son. And this world is headed toward another explosion of overwhelming joy when God ushers in the new creation and the bride is made ready by the Son, through the Son, for the Son. The universe began with a wedding and the universe is headed toward a wedding. And in each one of those, God supernaturally creates the bride. It's God's doing. Joy is coming. Joy that will never be exalted, exhausted in all of eternity. This is a passage so filled with praise. Oh, unified praise, grounded in in God and His godness, His works of salvation, His works of judgment, and ultimately His work to create a bride through His Son, by His Son, for His Son. As unbelievable as it is, we, the church, are the reward of the suffering of the Son to the Son. How gracious is our God we can sing together that from heaven he came and sought her to be his only bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. And there is nothing in all creation, in heaven and on earth or under the earth that will stop this groom from pursuing and capturing his bride for all eternity, forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for the heights and the depths of your love, and we pray this morning that you would seal your word to our hearts and that we would respond in faith. We pray that you would help us to obey you and to worship you as is your due. And we pray this in the name of the living and risen Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.